If you get the weekly emails from your elders, you know that this is a three-part assignment that grew out of our work with Paul and Allison of Crossroads Resolution Group. Out of their work with your session and with you, grew an assignment to write a paper called How Christians Ought to Live Together When They Disagree. And that's what was emailed to you in the week, and some of you in the, in the, in the, audience, in the congregation here have hard copies. Accompanying that paper is a sermon on the same topic. So that's why I am in Colossians 3. I've found it a very appropriate text for this topic, maintaining a culture of reconciliation, managing disagreements with grace. Our text then is Colossians 3, 12-17. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Did did the kids, are the kids dismissed? Sorry, children, you're dismissed to your class. They've gone, okay, thanks. I ran across an article a number of years ago about a thriving church dynamic pastor, many healthy ministries that imploded. Apparently, a church leader in a serving line at a church supper received a smaller piece of fried chicken than he thought he deserved. And after a flurry of phone calls and emails and one thing led to another, the church split What happened? I don't know exactly. But we can be fairly certain what did not happen. Colossians 3, 12-17 did not happen. What's Paul doing? Paul's actually teasing out the implications of the two verses that precede this beautiful, majestic section of Scripture. In chapter 3.10, he says, you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul wants to describe the qualities of the new humanity that you possess in Jesus. What does it look like when the Spirit renews a life and a heart into the image of Jesus Christ? That's what this text is answering. 
And it raises the question, what is an inevitable reality in the midst of the new humanity Jesus is forming as his people, the community Jesus is building by his grace, what is found in that environment where the gospel is nourishing souls? What do you find? You find disagreements, various personalities, different perspectives, different convictions, various interpretation of events, and different applications of Bible passages. When you put a big bunch of redeemed people in one organization, it is inevitable you'll have conflict, disagreement, and grievances. Notice in verse 13 how naturally Paul anticipates that complaints will rise against one another. Verse 13, bearing with one another. He started with this beautiful, what you're supposed to put on because you belong to God. And the next thing in his, out of his mouth is, bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against anyone other, be shocked. No. He doesn't say be shocked. He says forgive each other. Followers of Jesus are not immune from relational strife, but they are free in the gospel to bear with and to resolve their differences with grace. No church will ever implode doing these verses, what Paul delineates here. But to stay reconciled to each other while we process our disagreements and perhaps just getting to the place where we agree to disagree, takes the hard work of applying biblical principles, asking the right questions, and praying constantly for the Spirit of God to work these deeply in your heart. I'm going to suggest that there are three questions raised by this text that help us understand how we maintain a culture of reconciliation even when we disagree. Three simple questions I think the text gives us. Number one question you want to ask, who is in disagreement? Who's in disagreement? Every Christian community, according to Paul, is described in exactly the same way God's Old Testament people, Israel, is described, and the Son of God himself is described chosen, holy, and beloved. Who's in disagreement? God's chosen ones. What does that mean? God chose you out of death and brought you into life, out of darkness and brought you into light. God saved you from eternal wrath because of his sovereign delight, not your choice, not your initiative. He made you his precious possession. And guess what? The person against you have a complaint. You have a complaint. He made his precious possession. So if you understand the mercy you've received by being God's chosen one, you're going to be slow to be offended. You're not going to hold grudges. Because in the gospel, God has said, you were totally wrong absolutely blind to, even hostile to, the most important thing in life, who God is. But God says, I chose you anyway. <laughs> Therefore, dispense with the notion that you shouldn't be challenged or corrected. 
If you're chosen by God, ask the Spirit to make you aware. Pray, Holy Spirit, show me how my pride is likely to get the better of me, tempting me to be so sure that I'm right, or tempting me to assign assign sinister motives to other people. I don't believe there is a scoreboard in heaven about arguments you've won. But probably a scoreboard about how many times you bore with and showed grace and mercy to those with whom you disagreed. So Paul is saying, dress for your engaging of potential disagreements with mercy. Without it, you're going to hurt somebody. Other people are going to hurt you without it. God crushed his son to give you everlasting mercy. So who are you in disagreement with? People who are chosen. Secondly, holy. Everyone in the Christian community has been set apart by the pleasure of the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can make you more and more like Jesus. Holiness is an incredible blessing, privilege, glory. You're not only chosen, you're holy. So you can be sure in your conflict, God is using this to make you more like Jesus. He's ordained potential grievances as opportunities to let the Spirit of God make us more like Jesus. And remember, God not only chose you, but set you apart as his precious possession, but the person with with whom you have a complaint, God also chose and set apart as his precious possession. Who are we in disagreement with, Paul says? Those who are chosen, holy, and beloved. You see the genius of the way he starts this text. He wants you to know first, Who is it you have a grievance with? Who is it you have conflict with? They're chosen, they're holy, they're beloved. The person with whom you have conflict has the same status as you do. You were by nature completely unlovable and God loved you. He reconciled you to himself. You you went from his enemy to his friend. No stranger, but you belong to Christ. We are sons and daughters of the living God. Jesus, brothers and sisters, trophies of his grace. This is the bride of Jesus. The person you're in conflict with is the bride of Jesus. So to live in reconciliation with one another We've got nothing to lose, nothing to prove. You're his possession, so is the person with whom you have a grievance. What this produces is one of two cultures. There's sort of two ways to try to go about conflict resolution when you think about truth and grace. You can go about getting at the truth by starting with the truth and hopefully we get to grace or as Paul Cornwell taught us, you create a culture of grace and then you get to the truth. Do you see the difference? What's the truth? What's the truth? We might get to grace. Paul is saying you start with grace and you will get to the truth. So let's summarize the first point. You can't start resolving conflict with another person if you are camped in the rightness of your position but rather 
with clear sight of who it is with whom you're disagreeing. So slow down. Slow down. Reflect. Process. This other person is chosen, holy, beloved, as are you. Pray that reality deep into your heart. And it's the first question the text raises. With whom are you in conflict? Secondly, how are you disagreeing? Paul describes a specific heart, mindset, and demeanor necessary for resolving differences. Let's look at the heart. He begins in verse 12, put on or clothe yourself with compassion. That is having a deep sensitivity to the sorrows and needs of others enabling you to enter into their pain. Enter into their pain. Feel what they're feeling. Put on a heart of kindness. That's simply a friendly and helpful spirit aiming to meet others' needs. And meekness. This is having restraining the power of your personality, bringing the power of your personhood into submission to God's will that enables you to put the person before the problem. Some of us are wired to go after problem-solving, problem-solving, problem-solving. Paul is saying, put the person first, then you're ready to do your problem-solving. This will lead you to resolve conflicts with gentleness, and what do you think the opposite of gentleness is when you're in a conflict, when there's a grievance? You're tempted to be angry. And anger does a lot of good for conflicts, doesn't it? You've seen it. Everybody gets happier when someone's fuming with anger. Paul says anger gives the devil a foothold. This is true in your marriages. It's true with your kids. Boys and girls, it's true in your relationship with your brothers and sisters. Students, it's true of your relationship with your roommates. The devil wants you to win the argument even if you lose the person. So no wonder James 1.28, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger creates a blinding. You ever heard the phrase, I was so angry I couldn't see straight? You ever heard that phrase? That's right. Anger distorts your perspective of things. And you are more naturally destructive of relationships when you're angry. You're more blind to your faults when you're angry. That's why Proverbs 14, 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is hasty in temper exalts folly. That's the heart. There's a mind. I'm saying mine because I'm just taking it from what the word humility, the next thing in the list Paul says to put on is humility. The word literally means lowliness of mind. And it creates this picture that the humble person sees himself as a servant to others and puts others above himself. That's what the humble person does. Lowly thinking. So it's a way of thinking. Marty read earlier from Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility... In humility, count others more significant than yourself. There it is. That's humility. So tell yourself, in this conflict, I could be wrong. I might have logs in my eyes, huge, huge defects. 
I'm blind to. I don't know what I don't know. Remember the, the, the battle that's raging in the heart of every person that belongs to Jesus. It's a battle for pride and humility. The thing that most beautifies you, humility, you least desire. The thing that most soils your heart, pride, you least detect. That's the battle in all of our hearts. <laughs> How do you get at that battle? Prayer and the Word of God, and asking the Spirit of God to come in and expose and shed light and convict and help. Maybe ask other people to speak into your life too. So there's a heart, there's a mind, and I'm what I'm just calling a, de a demeanor. And he says, patience. That's a measure of how quick you are to react to other people. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger. It is his glory to overlook a transgression. You know what makes you beautiful? Not being in the right, but overlooking transgressions. Who would imagine? So it's the idea of, of holding out of your mind a notion so that thought doesn't give way to action that you're going to regret. And patience is the ability to bear up under injustice and unpleasant circumstances. Paul Cornwell taught us over and over again, maybe you heard it in one of the seminars, patience allows the power of God to show up. I think that's right. Because when we are running ahead in our flesh, God often just, when are you going to learn? Patience allows the power of God to show up. Proverbs 17, 27, Who, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. He who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. So we've got to do some self-diagnosis, self-awareness. Holy Spirit, make me aware, please. This takes prayer. Of, are there fears in my soul driving the need to be right, the need to be in control, the need to be liked? Yes, that's in your soul. <laughs> so patience slows you down to speak the truth and love. People, before problems, your words are never intended to malign but to benefit others. Proverbs 12, 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Rash words, sword thrusts. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. We want our tongue to do that. All right, so there you go. The heart, the mind, the demeanor. Paul hasn't stopped, though. He wants you to see those three things as three beautiful flowers that need to be, be stuck together. Terrible ver verb, sorry. That need to be stuck together in a vase. find a different word next time. This sermon is preached, right? So he's got a wrapping, a wrapping. Verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love isn't about your emotions. It's about action. What is best for this other person? How do I promote their highest good? How do I build them up? How do I think the best of them? Notice how in that classic text on love in 1 Corinthians 13, 
that Paul frames it this way. Because of your self-awareness, you can be other-centered. Because you're self-aware, you can focus on what's good for somebody else. Hear it in his words, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. That's making it about me. It's not arrogant or rude. Still about me. It does not insist on its own way. Still about me. It's not irritable or resentful. Be self-aware that that's a temptation to your heart. That was shared speaking, not Paul. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love rescues you from being controlled by your agenda or your impressions. And he's saying it harmonizes, harmonizes humility, patience, compassion in your heart. So, now are you ready to deal with grievances? Not quite. No. Nope. <laughs> you need a referee. Verse 15. And, see, Paul said, I'm not done. I'm not releasing you to resolve this conflict. Don't release yourself to deal with this grievance until you've got a referee. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. What is the peace of Christ? It's that glorious contentment of soul, that settledness in the inner part of your being that relishes the peace you have with God because of Jesus. That sense, I am dearly loved, safe in God's protecting hand by the work of the Son of God, which is safe and secure and certain. So Paul uses a very interesting verb, let the peace of Christ rule. It's the word for referee. Referee. Sports fans, what are referees supposed to do? Blow the whistle. And you were taught in practice, stop when the whistle blows. You don't keep driving to the hoop. You don't keep tackling or blocking. When the whistle blows, stop. How many of you athletes know that phrase? When the whistle blows, stop. That's what Paul is saying. If you're insisting on your own way, the referee's blowing the whistle. Stop. If you're angry, peace blows the whistle. If you're irritable or resentful, peace is blowing the whistle. If you're defensive, distorting the truth, gossiping, peace is blowing the whistle. If you're not maintaining unity in the body, peace is blowing the whistle. <laughs> right? So you can be confident that when the peace of Christ rules, patience prevails got to. Patiently, therefore, beloved, patiently ask questions, gather data, listen. Ask more questions, listen longer, and then scrutinize what you desire out of this. I'm thinking of Proverbs 18, too. You read it this morning in your devotions. It's the 18th. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Patiently identifying what are their interests? What are my interests? You're not ready to do grievance resolution until you value their interests. That's what Allison taught us in the Sunday School Hour on October 25th. You're not ready until you value their interests. And this is Philippians 2.4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What are they contending for? Be self-aware. 
What am I contending for? And be on your guard. You are most dangerous when you're convinced you're right. Let's suppose you are right. Patience. When you sense that you're right, that tends to fuel impatience. I went sailing with this guy up at the uh, Naval War College in Rhode Island when I was in high school, and he obviously knew sailing, and I obviously didn't, and he was very impatient with me. And I'm like, dude, I've never done this before. Still remember that, you know, 50-some years later. Patience. Casting skepticism on your position. I could be wrong. I may lack data. I don't know it all. I don't see it all. I don't get it all. I have logs in my eyes that might distort my understanding. And, and Holy Spirit in prayer, is there some self-protection around my position that I'm afraid to be exposed? So one proof you're doing this, and it's in the text, and it's said three times, and what is it? You're thankful. You're thankful. Patience also produces gratitude. And when we rush into relational conflict and we leave gratitude behind, we're not going to do it well. We can we you have to stop and go, thank you. They are your treasure possession, Lord. Thank you. You're using this conflict for our growth together in grace. So gratitude for grace keeps you, these are Paul's words, from serving a godly cause in an ungodly way. Gratitude, patience, keeps you from serving a good cause, a right cause, a godly cause, in an ungodly way. And that happens to the best of us. So, once you've clearly identified who you're in conflict with, and you've committed your heart to how you're going to do it, then be diligent to do the last question, which is to take time to determine what are we disagreeing about. So we're now on to the third thing. Now that you've prepared yourself to listen, because you care more about the person than the argument, and again, just basic human relations, if you're going to get in a spat with somebody close to you, and you feel inside... I just need to be right. You're caring more about the argument than the person. It's probably not going to go real well. So now, how do we make sense of where we are at odds? Let me just tease out a couple steps. Step one, verse 16. Let the, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's a word for extravagant, ornate. It's what you see when you go into a mansion and everything is decorated to the hilt. Paul wants the word of God making your heart ornate with its light, its truth, its wisdom, its beauty, and its glory. Let the word of Christ dwell in you extravagantly so that you can teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Why is that important? Because you may decide too quickly to agree to disagree and not get to the point where the Bible has said clearly what... Here's an example. When I was in college, I remember this friend. I know exactly where I was outside of my dorm walking across this field. And my friend Jim, I don't know how we started talking about this. It's been forever ago. But he said, Mike, you need to tithe. And I go, no, I don't believe that. You know why I said I didn't believe that? 
because I didn't want to give any more of my money to God. I'd never examined the biblical data on this. Never. So I can't agree to disagree with Jim on that. I hadn't studied the Bible on it. So don't, sometimes you might get to agree to disagree, but don't use it as an opportunity to shortcut getting to what the Bible says. You need wisdom to balance. When, is, when do I speak the truth? When do I protect that person's good name? Both are biblical values. Both are biblical values. We need the word of God to frame our responsibilities. God has given you shepherds, elders, to care for you, to, to make sure that your doctrine is right, your life is right, and it's all based on on the word of God. And so there's the, there's, the, there's the responsibility of the shepherds of the church to not short-circuit disagreements. We're just going to agree to disagree. No, some things may become a matter that, that need real change. I had an elder in my church in Fort Worth who came from a Baptist background. He became convinced of infant baptism. He then changed his position. He came to me and said, I'm no longer in, I don't, no longer believe in infant baptism. I said, it's okay, Dale. We love you. You can stay in the church. You can't be an elder, but you, and he understood. That's why he was coming to me. You can stay in the church. Please just don't teach that position in this church. Of course I won't. See, sometimes what kind of church it is makes a difference in where you go with your disagreements. And your elders have a responsibility for your doctrine and for your life. Step one. Step two. Parse carefully what exactly are we disagreeing about. And remember that your perspective is colored by a whole lot of different things. Your perspective is tainted by your gifting, your temperament, your idols, your personality, your culture, your memory, your experience, your vantage point, your brokenness, and what you value. And think of this question in the church. Do we budget money for the singles, or do we budget money for the retirees, for the, for, for the aged? How do we, right? It depends on, oh, I got all the single people over here. Because you place a higher value on that. We get that. There's nothing wrong with that. No, we need to put the money. You place a higher value on that. So sometimes it's a matter of what you value. It isn't a right or wrong. It's where you decide to place your emphasis. As I, I thought about this sermon, this is a completely new, new thing for me. And all your elders have read this sermon and made comments. And I've been helped by their comments. Because this is a presentation from your session to you, as is the paper. So if I've said anything wrong from the paper you've reviewed, guys, please call me out on it later. As I thought about this, okay, what do we, what, what, how do you parse disagreements? It seems like there's two things that you parse, events and viewpoints. And maybe there's more. Come help me if I've got this wrong. But as regarding events, you have discussions about what happened in the past, what might happen in the future. As, a, as, as it relates to a past event, what do you want to ask? What happened? What was your experience? What were other people's experience? What's the interpretation of what happened? Is it possible you don't have all the facts? There's a lot of questions you could ask about a past event. How about events in the future? Like, what should we do if and when? Well, People disagree on what should be done. Right, honey, where do we vacation this year? We're going to the ocean. No, we're going to the mountains. No, we're going into the district. What? People disagree. So you're looking for the wisest course of action. That you have the future 
shaped by biblical principle. All right, so people disagree on events, and they disagree on viewpoints. And it seems to me, if, if you sort of look at all possible viewpoints, you've got viewpoints on what Scripture teaches and viewpoints on everything else. Or Paul uses the word adiaphora, the indifferent. He uses that, I think it's in 1 Corinthians. There are things that we can't say. The Scripture forbids that. What color should the tile be in the building? God's Word doesn't tell you. It's an adiaphora. <laughs> what do you think is pleasing? What's the architect suggest? What do the interior designers suggest? Okay, so that's an adiaphora. So we disagree on what Scripture says. We disagree on things that are indifferent. What's your goal? Your goal is to get here. And the sermon's almost done. I know this is longer than normal. Because I patiently listened and entered into your interest and your perspective, I can articulate your perspective as well as you can. So I wrote a paper on infant baptism long after this elder changed his mind. I want a Reformed Baptist pastor who disagrees with me to be able to read it and go, you understand my point of view. I don't agree with you. You don't agree with me. But you haven't created a straw man. That's what you call an argumentation, of a, a false set of categories to try to tear down your, the other side. Because I patiently listened, I entered into your interest and your perspective. I can articulate your view as well as you can articulate mine. I might not agree with it, but I understand it. And let's suppose we disagree with the application of Scripture. I'll pick a, should you date, right? Should your high schoolers date? Pretty important question. You need to ask questions like, what fruit is going to be born from this? Does this action require other doctrines of Scripture to be compromised? Can you do that in Jesus' name? Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. So you have an interpretation of Scripture so-and-so doesn't disagree with. If you're going, to, you're going to follow that interpretation, you're sure you can put Jesus' name on it. So what this does is produces a deliberate, intentional process to get you to one of these outcomes. I've heard you out, and I actually changed my position having heard you. I've heard you out, you've actually changed your position having heard me. We've heard each other out, and we've actually both made both of our positions a little more elastic. We've grown a little in our perspective. I mean, isn't that the job of theology, to listen, to learn, to expand, to create greater capacity in your thinking about what you already knew? Or we agree to disagree. We agree to disagree. What's next? Short point. What's next? If we determine someone's been wronged, we, verse 13, forgive. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against one another, comma, and you've done everything I just preached, <laughs> Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That must is a certainty predicated on the certainty of your forgiveness. So Paul has, in the rearview mirror, chapter 2, verse 14. He's not, he's not far from that. 
Because if you go back to chapter 2, 13, excuse me, Paul tells us of Jesus' cross, he has forgiven us all of our transgressions by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So before Paul ever gets you to all the ethical uh, imperatives of his epistle, he's got you at the cross where your debt was paid, where Christ suffered. He sacrificed himself for you. He gave himself up for you. He opened the fountain of everlasting mercy and grace for you. And you can't forgive somebody you haven't been at the cross as Christ forgave you. So this then preserves our highest responsibility and privilege singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Worship. It leads to a place of worship. God is glorified and Christ is revealed as Savior, Redeemer, Reconciler, and Lord. Probably more we could say, that's what I had to share with you as God continues our work of reconciliation together. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for their love for you, your love for them. Thank you for their interest in the Word of God. Thank you for this ongoing work in our midst of uh, being at peace with one another, learning what does it mean to be reconciled, to agree to disagree, to be thoughtful, to listen, to love. Lord, continue this work. We pray and we plead and we do so in the name of Jesus and for the name of Jesus. Amen.